Hello and welcome to Politics on Draft and me, Kartik Sony. This week it's just me, James is in Paris, but I have got two special guests with me. Their names are Josh and Alexi. Josh and Alexi, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Josh. I'm a student of International Relations and History at King's. Um, I'm incredibly humbled to be on this podcast, Kartik. <laughs> yeah, hi, my name is Alexi and I'm also a History and International Relations student at King's. And also incredibly humbled to be on this podcast. Humbled, humbled <laughs> almost to the umpteenth degree, Kartik. So, so hum- humbled is a common feeling throughout the podcast. That sounds good. For the first time, this podcast isn't Queen Mary dominated. We've got Duke King student with us, as you just heard. So Josh and Alexi, why don't you tell us what you're drinking? So I have a bottle of Bira Moretti, which is is okay. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, a bottle of strawberry parmen, uh, which is which is honestly more than okay. Fair enough. I'm just having Budweiser because um, I know Josh is going to talk about America a little bit, so I thought I'd go on. And that's all I had in the fridge. Um, but yeah, so Alexi, what do you want to talk about? And tell us about it. So yeah, I, I'd like to talk about climate change, well, climate politics specifically. Um, it's quite a big thing in the news now, and obviously it's going to be an even bigger thing worldwide going forward. So I'd like to sort of introduce where we are today. A lot of campaign groups seem to tout that it's the end of the world, the end is near. But the situation is a bit more complex, but it's definitely very, very serious. So according to the Paris Agreement, uh, we are aiming to get 1.5 degrees maximum uh, greenhouse gas sort of rise by 2030 to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a very ambitious goal. Uh, because we are currently on track for three degrees of rising by 2030. Um, to achieve the 2030 goal, it's also essential that greenhouse gas emissions peak by 2025 at the latest, which would sort of mean that we need a COVID 2020 lockdown level of emission drops every two years to meet the 2030 target. So it's a pretty high bar. And uh, to me, it seems pretty unattainable and it's very very depressing. So you mentioned 2020 COVID lockdown emissions. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Did emission levels drop during the pandemic? Why did they drop? How much did they drop? I do you know approximately? I haven't got the exact figures on that to hand, but I know that with lockdowns, air travel was basically shut down. We had far less people using their cars. Some industries shut down because obviously the workers were in lockdown. So mm-hmm. we saw the world come to a standstill, really. It was hugely, massively disruptive, and that's why. So mm-hmm. the goal is so unattainable. Uh, so this is why I'd argue that currently we are not in a preventing climate change stage. The boat has sailed. We're in a climate mitigation stage. And I feel that this is why climate change is not really a political issue anymore, but a security issue. The governments mm-hmm. need to change the way that they think about climate change, because the reality is we're probably not going to meet 1.5. Uh, but the world, so we have to recognize that the world is going to change. Um doesn't mean it will end, but I think it will end in specific locations across the world. We're going to have huge sort of geological change. Islands are going to disappear, especially in the Pacific. Uh, massive disruptions of food change, uh, sorry, food supply chains, uh, with rising sea levels leading to the salination of fresh water that is used for farmlands. Uh, and all of this will lead to mass displacement. We'll have climate refugees, and we already have 10 million in Bangladesh. And the sea level rises there are set to displace 20 million more people by 2050, which is quite terrifying, really. Yeah. But in terms of UK, uh, I think that's one thing we can really focus on. Um, 
at the moment, would you say it's addressing what needs to be done? Well, uh, it's a complicated question because in theory, yes, um, the 2008 Climate Change Act um, states that the government is committed to net zero by 2050. Uh which is not ideal, but it's still very ambitious because we, uh, the United Kingdom, the first country to create a legally binding national commitment to cut greenhouse emissions. The government also joined the 2015 Paris Agreement, which sets the goal of, as I said, the limit to global warming to two degrees, which is sort of ideally put at 1.5, but it gives a bit of room. Um, however, although the, be- uh, the UK uses barely any coal energy anymore and is planning to phase it out completely by 2024, and is big on renewables such as wind. Uh, we have this issue with the UK corporate finance sector, which massively funds fossil fuel projects. And mm-hmm. a crazy statistic there is that the finance sector itself in the UK creates 1.8 times more emissions than the whole of the UK. And I mean, what we seem oh. to have done is sort of cleaned up our own shop and outsourced the problem. That's, um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely an interesting twist on it. I, I, I saw somewhere on the internet that I think it was maybe more than that was largest contributor to uh, greenhouse gases. Am I right or am I wrong? Do you know who is contributing? I think you're probably right there. Yeah, um, it's it's huge. Uh, the What global finance is doing, investing in oil and gas projects across the world is absolutely massive. And we now have a prime minister who is a former Shell employee. I mean, the issue is institutionalized within the establishment, the political establishment was meant to be tackling this issue. It's bizarre. And I think... You could see how bizarre it is in some of the policies. Um, obviously, the, the ban on fracking that was imposed in 2019 has been lifted, uh, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, crazy. Jacob Rees-Mogg made the bizarre argument in Parliament that it's more environmentally friendly to use our own sources of fuel rather than extra- extracting and importing them from other countries. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's mental. And the, the thing about fracking is that it won't actually make a difference to the price of gas because gas prices are set by the international market, it's not going to help the consumer much. It's only going to create hazards and safety issues with the the seismic activity that fracking has been proven to create. Yeah, no, you're right. Before, during the um, uh, leadership election, Matt Hancock spoke to the FT, and I know Matt Hancock's not a good authority figure whatsoever, but Matt Hancock was talking about how we need to change the way gas and where it's priced on global market and how that could potentially lower prices so how it weighs up in terms of environmentally friendly it's not necessarily true whether it's better for the consumer again we don't know um well you say it's 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 not better for the consumer fundamentally um but in terms of moving forward it's likely that labor at the moment labor looks to be winning the next next general election whether it's next year or 2024 have you had a start policy ideas and what do you think yeah uh, I, i'd say that starmer's saying all the right things uh it looks great uh new era of economic growth the sort of usual rhetoric of an opposition party mm-hmm. um the policies look good massive expansion of wind and solar energy which i'm happy about um the policies he say will cut household energy bills for good and create jobs which is wonderful. Uh, I'd like to just see it in practice. Um, but it's definitely encouraging that he's talking about renewables when another recent uh, bizarre policy from the Conservatives has been to um, look to ban farmers from placing solar panels on their land, uh, which is 
quite ludicrous from a libertarian government to tell farmers what they can or cannot put on their land. Um, solar panels are also providing huge benefit to farmers, the local community with the electricity that generates and the surplus that comes with it, pushing for sustainable farmland. Solar does not waste farmland, like it's often said. Um, the shade underneath the panels creates uh, opportunity for livestock to seek shade. And solar can also work with crop farming through agrivoltaics, uh, which is basically a fancy way of saying growing plants underneath solar panels. Um, so growing crops this way has actually be, has the added benefits of improving yields in some cases in certain crops, uh, because the elevated panels protect the crops from the environment. Uh, it seems to me that the environment policies from the Conservative Party is sort of weaponized to, uh, well, it's not weaponized, but it's being used as a tool by Truss currently to unite the party, which she has split. So Truss is trying to sort of regain the, the control that Boris Johnson had over the, the three dominant wings of the Conservative Party, which are the crazy libertarians, uh, the Red Wall Tories, and the Shire Tories. Um, I know that solar panels are, are not very popular with some of the Shire Tories because of how they look, frankly. They just don't think that they're very pretty uh, and they ruin the, <laughs> the wonderful English countryside. Um, and I, it seems as if this is just sort of a cheap sort of policy that's going to try and unite her internal party. So this is what I mean, that climate change is not being taken that seriously by the Conservatives. It's It's just... They, I don't feel that they completely understand the gravity of the situation, whereas what I see from Starmer is encouraging. He is looking to to actually expand these industries and, and, and promote jobs, and I'd, I'd just like to see him do it. I'm just... I, I know I agree with you. I agree with you. It's I was speaking to... I don't know if you heard the last episode, but I was speaking to uh, some Green Party voters last Saturday, and they said that they would be looking for Starmer for a tactical but because they really desperately want to get the Tories out but they're desperately going to hold Keir Starmer to account when it comes to the policies uh, on climate change and a commitment to 20, uh, 2030 on fracking could you I don't, to, could you put fracking into layman's terms uh, for everyone and could you explain the environment and the climate impact of, of fracking and what it will do to the UK specifically yeah so fracking is basically blowing up the rocks under the, under the soil uh, because there are sort of fissures, existing fissures in there that contain oil or gas. And the idea is that you blow it up and you extract it, um, which is an incredibly, you could say, an incredibly violent way of extracting oil and gas from mm -hmm. the earth. It causes, but it's been proven to cause, which is why it was banned in 2019, uh, an increase in seismic activities and earthquakes on a small scale. Uh, but obviously, if you expand it out, I'm sure the earthquakes will. What well, science sort of say that the earthquakes will expand too. Um, it's it's just massively disruptive, and that's why it faced such huge opposition from local residents and the communities affected. Uh, which is, I mean, why I, I frankly think that it won't pass, um, despite the huge majority. I just can't. I I just I just can't see it passing because it's completely well mad. I'm going to have to interrupt you because apparently Jacob Rees-Mogg came out yesterday and said that they don't, have, they don't necessarily have to put it through a vote in Parliament. So it might well pass because it's not going to be a vote. Yeah, I mean, good point. If, if they want to run the place like a dictatorship, I guess that's their prerogative. And I think so if you look at um, how the um, lots of Shire Tories have reacted to what Liz Truss has said, lot, uh, there's a lot, we are very much a NIMBY nation, 
and there is no consensus among any Tories that a, there would be forced fracking in in any location of of Tory of well of yeah the, Tory I mean, the, the lifting of the ban actually they said that it depends on the consent of local communities, um, which I, I doubt they're going to get. Um, as you say, Josh, the NIMBYism—they're not particularly keen on these things in their own backyard, just as they aren't with solar panels, frankly, uh, and wind turbines, which apparently make the coast look ugly. It's just this endemic problem in in, in British politics. I mean, all that's, the science points not being safe—it's just—it's mental. Hey, but it's the Tory party. We don't listen to science. We don't like to listen to experts. Yeah, and also I'd add, I also don't think this government really cares at all about consensus or or whether they're whether they're supported or not. The idea of pushing this fracking uh, fracking legislation through is purely because they they don't really care about whether they have support for it or not. It's about sort of um, giving up some ground to uh, to corporate interest and and fracking interest groups. I want to ask you one more question: Do you think the vast majority of our political class is too old fashioned to deal with? this issue don't I mean, be ageist here yeah <laughs> look I, I i i'm not keen to be ageist here obviously young people understand sort of they they, they more so understand and they, they more so care because they will be directly affected by it whereas some of the old generation won't um but i i think that in you know the green party and extinction rebellion and even you know and the labor party there are older politicians who also recognise the madness and they've taken their experience in life to sort of come to understand how bad these things are. I, 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 I don't like the idea of alienating and groups and, and finger pointing, frankly. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So we'll move on to the international side. Or is old fashioned. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. That's what that's what that's what I was going for. Are the Tories old fashioned? Are the Tories do set in their ways um but we'll move on to the inter- how can we communicate climate change policies to those in the global south uh india has committed to a target of zero emissions by 2070 uh, uh, but surely based on what you've said that is way too late how do we communicate these policies or does the onus even fall upon the developed west quote unquote does it require a multi- multilateral approach do these countries have to arrive to these conclusions themselves so i think when it comes to the international, it's a really difficult argument to make. I think it's right that, you know, all countries, even across the global south as well, the developing nations, they should be pursuing their economic development in a, in a sustainable manner, because frankly, the, the threat is existential. But it's a bit rich uh, coming from the global north, lecturing the global south on how they should economically develop when the global north exploited the global south for their resources and use those resources to push through things like the industrial revolution, which put us well, put us on the track to be in the position that we are in today. It's mm-hmm. it's just a really hard sell. And although I will use the example of Bolsonaro, although he's an awful guy, uh, I in no way endorse his policies. But <laughs> something that he said, you know, at one point was really interesting. He, he's saying, you know, well, why why you know shouldn't we you know do these things if you know. It, it, it's it's my sort of duty to economically develop this nation. And if the West or the global North, however you want to phrase it, is not going to provide us with economic support to develop sustainably, what choice do we have? And I understand mm-hmm. that. I, it, it, it makes sense. And, and the West needs to look to 
it, it, I guess that's a very it's a very transactional approach to climate change. It's sort of a, a quid pro quo. And although I don't think it's wise, I think it's the I guess it's the reality that we're in. But the global north needs to be promoting sustainable development in the global south. They need to be investing in carbon capture projects, biodiversity projects, you know, wind and solar, everything along those lines, not sort of sending in big oil to extract resources from, you know, the global south. They should be providing technologies. It's difficult with the system that we live in, um, being a capitalist system. There needs to be an economic incentive. And I, I think that people that are much cleverer than I <laughs> need to up with a way of economically incentivizing sustainable development as opposed to just sort of leaving it to the leaving it to the free market, which will inevitably lead to big oil and the big mining companies to just come in and take what they want. You make an interesting point about being transactional. Where my worry comes in is that is if the global north is then investing in the global south, is the basically the energy storage and the energy production of the global south then economically dependent upon the global north, if there are debts to then be paid back? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because this is the sort of another issue that comes with this is that is it imperialism two point Yeah, we're opening the door to this sort of mad capitalist neo neo colonialism, and it, it's it's uh, it, it's a really really difficult issue to face. Um, I, ideally, these sorts of projects would be carried out without the without anything in return. But I I just I I, I don't know how it's going to be done. Um, I guess upping our foreign aid budgets instead of cutting it might be a start. But yeah. Or just meeting our targets of 0.7% of GDP. Yeah, me, at least meeting the targets that we have. It, it, it's really quite uh, an impossible issue. The private corporations are just going into, you know, line their pockets. It's not, it's not going to be ideal either way. Um, if... If we are then encouraging, okay, let's say we move past that problem. If, if we are then encouraging the global south to adopt more climate-friendly forms of energy production, do they need, it can't be one-size-fits-all, surely. It needs to be a different development specific to their state of development, geographical specification, etc. Like, we can't necessarily encourage Indians to buy electric cars when they're so expensive, so we need to encourage the government to invest more in their public transport sector and make that more, more environmentally friendly. Do, do you get what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm a big proponent of public transport. I think it's the way forward. Um, in terms, one of one of the one of the ways in which we can tackle emissions is through public transport. Absolutely, sustainable public transport. Fair enough. Before we go on to a break, could you sum up everything that you said in two seconds? Not two seconds, two minutes. I think fundamentally. Where we're at is, as I said before, a point of mitigation and not reversal. Frankly, we are where we are as a result of the decisions that were made, you know, stemming back hundreds of years. This is a sort of, a, a, in a way, you could frame climate change as a legacy of colonialism and the Industrial Revolution. Um, it's up to us now to think pragmatically and multilaterally, I think, the solutions will never be statist. Um, I'm not a big believer in international institutions, to be honest, but we need to find a way to work with international institutions to incentivize sustainable development and reframe it 
uh, away from sort of this like this hippie idea to a real serious serious idea we need concrete strategies fair enough thank you very much we'll go to a break now and then we will come back and we will discuss the alaskan election and big bear week i think that's what it's called josh so welcome back to politics on raft uh you just heard alexi talking about climate change and climate policy and climate politics now we're going to move on to a little bit of a less somber top topic i miss uh i misused its name it's not big Bear Week, it's Fat Bear Week, and we have Josh here to introduce us to it. He's also going to talk about the Alaskan special elections. It's not just going to be the next 20 minutes on the Fat Bear Week. So, Josh, tell us about Fat, we- Fat Bear Week. Yeah, sorry to disappoint everyone. It'll only be, um, it's only effectively, so Fat Bear Week has just come and gone. Highlight of my year, Bear 747, <laughs> the Jumbo Jet One. Um, but I'm mainly here to just have a chat about electoral politics, electoral reform, and what that could possibly mean um, for not only American politics, but potentially what that could also mean for uh, British politics as well. Um, so Fat Bear Week, just come and go on. Yes. It's just a single, a classic single elimination tournament, bracketed. Um, the rangers at Katmai National Park in Alaska decide on the bears. Um, the Bears match up and contestants, says there was about 800,000 this year, voted on which bear, um, and this is quoted, best exemplifies fatness. So that's come and gone, and uh, the fat bear, Bear 747, the Jumbo Jet, has, has won it. But probably the more important um, elections uh, and competitions coming up in Alaska are coming up on November 8th, so that's sort of uh, just under a month away. And what's intriguing about the Alaskan electoral system is that it's become one of the only states in uh, the whole of the US to use ranked choice voting. So just to quickly explain what ranked choice voting entails, um, in the UK we call it alternative voting, um, and also it's been called instant runoff voting. Uh, But it's effectively just an electoral system that will allow different people to um, vote for multiple candidates in order of preference for those said candidates. So instead of just going ahead and choosing the one candidate you want to win, your ballot paper uh, will allow you to pick your first, second, third or as many needed choices as possible for each position on that ballot. Um, The candidate with the majority, which is more than 50%, Um, wins outright, if no candidate will get that, then there is a new voting process triggered. The candidate who did the worst will get eliminated. The candidate's voters' ballots are then redistributed to those uh, voters' second choices. So, in other words, if you rank to losing candidate as your first choice and the candidate is eliminated, your vote will still count and it moves to your second choice. Um, and then the process will just continue until there's uh, a winner with the majority of votes, so the needed 50%. And that's effectively what Alaska has uh, has just put into place. So basically how we used to vote, I think it's changed now, how we used to vote for the mayoral elections in the UK, in the London mayoral elections at least. Um, yeah. But is Alaska the only one to operate this voting, uh, these, this electoral system, or are there other states also So across the US, there are um, multiple cities, including huge metropolitan centres like New York, Minneapolis, um, 
St. Paul's, etc., that, that use it. So lots of cities, a few select counties, but also significantly Maine. Um, and the reason I've chosen to focus on Alaska is because it's brand new. Um, but Maine has had the system since, well, voted in in 2018. But the situation in Maine is um, is uh, quite nuanced at the, at the moment and not as applicable to the national scene. Hence why I've decided to focus on Alaska, which is sort of a brand new player in this game. And also a really important one when considering... Um, its importance to the Democratic Party, but more importantly, its fundamental importance to the Republican Party as well. So explain the significance to each party for the sake of our listeners and for me electing. So, like I said, I'll just discuss its significance in Alaska. Alaska has a really interesting relationship with politics. It is by far the most rural state in, um, in the, con- well, in the United States. It's, um, it has a history of being sort of libertarian, but but equally sort of the Republican, it was a Republican governor that introduced this uh, dividend that pays out oil profits to each and every individual citizen of the state. Meanwhile, it was a Democrat that went on to be one of the leading founders of the Libertarian Party. So it's got a huge, a hugely diverse um, set of beliefs focusing on, obviously, focused in on uh, being rural, being so disconnected, and being obviously uh, one of the newer states as well. Um, and it's, but in terms of its uh, its electoral history, it's been a Republican-dominated state by far. Um, so Don Young, who was the representative for the Alaska at large, because it only has one um, electoral um, representative seat, uh, held the seat since I think the night well the 1970s at least he had been in office for 49 years before he um Ooh. before he passed away triggering the first case of ranked choice voting in the special runoff election which is what I'm gonna which is what I'm gonna focus in on uh quickly now to discuss its its importance so like I said Don Don Young um a really charismatic presence in the House of Representatives um, and uh, a pretty a pretty interesting character in himself passed away earlier this year, triggering a special election for the replacement of his seat. Um, this election happened earlier this year, and it was the first instance of ranked choice voting in the state. Uh, effectively, there's a, a first round, and then the candidates are shortened to just four for the second round. In this round, you had some really old um, and interesting names in Alaskan politics, such as Nick Begich the third, whose uh, lineage has dissipated for for uh, years in Alaskan politics. Uh, you have Sarah Palin, who can never avoid an election, it seems. And then you have uh, the Democratic candidates, uh, one of which Al Gross dropped out, uh, running more as an independent. He's an interesting case in himself, but but not hugely relevant um, in terms of. Uh, votes, and then you have the main Democratic candidate for the special election, election, uh, an, uh, a native of Alaska, um, Peltola, my apologies, um, Mary Peltola. And what was interesting was this was seen as it's always been seen as sort of quite a safe uh, Republican victory. However, after the first round of voting and Begich's elimination, there were real questions about how his votes would be split. And what you saw was that while a majority of his votes did go to Palin, the more extreme, I would say, of the two candidates, the more populist, almost, 
I would definitely characterise Palin as the Trump before Trump, who really popularised um, American politics. Yeah, she is. She's a she, she is a Trump supporter, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would and I would absolutely describe her as a populist candidate in many respects. But and while a lot of Beggett, who's a real moderate Republican in many senses, a lot of his votes did go to Palin, about 15,000. 13,000 actually went to Peltola, which actually gave her the majority and won her the election. So she became the first um, Democratic uh, representative for Alaska since uh, Nick Begich's father, in fact, who was the who was the, the second. Yeah, Nick Begich the second, exactly. <laughs> no, fair enough. And and what does this portray about the national image of U.S. politics? What's going on? Could you give us a sum up of that as well? Yeah. So absolutely. So if you're looking at the national picture of American politics currently, the 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 topic on everyone's tongues is how this midterm is going to uh is going to affect the national picture. Obviously, earlier in the year, it was blatantly obvious that Democrats were going to get absolutely sweeped and a wave of quite um, quite radical Republicans would come in. But as we moved closer and Biden seemed to have got inflation under control to some extent um, and get uh, a lot of press away from the oil pumps, it became... Um, it became less clear, but now we're we're coming right up to the gates of them, and there are an astounding amount of election deniers, Trumpian candidates, and populists on the ballot who will run in a lot of states completely unopposed, um, and will will get into will will get into legislative positions that can cause some real damage because there's a big there's a big understanding currently in American politics that the big decisions are actually made at the local level. Um, and that's where stuff is moved and that's where stuff happens. And you're going to see, because of a huge issue of, of voters not turning up, being restricted in many senses, you obviously have gerrymandering and so on. And, and, it, and it, it's formed itself into a system that is so susceptible to extremist candidates. So what I would you, like... I'm just going to interrupt you. That you, you mentioned gerrymandering. Number one, could you explain it for us, what it is? Number two, could you explain the impact of gerrymandering on Alaska, which is which has now adopted RCB? Of course. So gerrymandering in general is where you redraw elections in order to better suit your political needs. So uh, it's it was originally called gerrymandering because the... Um, a, a map drawn by one of the uh, rep representatives uh, for a Republican party back in the day. Uh, it looked a little bit like a salamander. His name was Jerry, and hence <laughs> gerrymandering was born. But it's it can be done on uh, a lot of bases. Uh, usually it's just for political support. But in some cases, especially in the South, it's used to isolate uh, racial minorities. So while they might be the largest majority of a state, if you move around districting maps and, and move around um, different, different districts themselves, what you can cause is a, is a majority overall is sectioned into different mi minority seats and hence will have less representation at the national level, uh, well, at the, at the electable level, no, no matter how they vote. Um, it's a real nasty way of politics. And, and while there's a, there are suggestions of having sort of neutral groups come in and do uh, gerrymandering. This is still the case in, in so many states. It's done by Democrats. It's done by Republicans. Um, obviously, I'm not trying to compare the two. Republicans do it a lot more and a lot more based on, on race uh, as well. Um, but it's, it's a real issue. If you look at, look at Alaska, it's a slightly different picture because Alaska is uh, very, very, uh, very rural. Um, and it's 
their Democratic base is really spread out, while their Republican base is larger, but equally spread out. It's not like Anchorage is a Democratic hub. Um, it's just not the case. And um, while it is slightly more democratic than the rest of the state, gerrymandering really hasn't played a huge role, in my opinion, and in a few of the a few of the academic articles I've read in deciding how Alaskans vote. Right. So we've discussed RCV. How can you compare that into what AV in the what AV in the UK has done, where it's used, and what the Labour Party's come up with? The Labour Party's recently at its conference voted through proportional representation. What could what could that look like? Tell us. Sure. So um, when you move uh, this, this what many would deem a successful example of ranked choice voting in the States over to the UK, you will uh, quickly discover that actually we've been given the opportunity to have alternative voting in the UK. As part of the Cameron Clegg coalition, they asked the UK um, to vote uh, on whether we would like an alternative voting strategy rather than the first-past-the-post system that we currently have. The vote was rejected um, pretty, pretty succinctly and pretty overwhelmingly, despite... No one turned up for the vote either. Sorry? And no one turned up uh, for the referendum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, one of the issues was that the Labour Party actually took a pretty, uh, a pretty neutral response. Well, many of its individual leaders, like Sue, had Ed Billamand, you had about 50 individual Labour MPs, all say yes and say that yes we should have this alternative voting and they join their colleagues in the Liberal Democrats and Greens and so on in this in this approach. Um, what you had was was wasn't a strong enough drive by by the Labour Party at the time. So one of the you know one of the top three recognizable parties in the in the nation at the time. And uh, that partly led to people not turning up and, and not voting for it. And you saw it pretty pretty religiously shot down but what's also interesting um to talk about is sort of i'm sure it doesn't surprise us but um the daily uh daily mail telegraph and so on all also led quite heavy campaigns against it as did um the uh, gmb trade union and that that also created a, a sort of climate that was quite anti-alternative voting at the time yeah, I can see why the Lib Dems wanted to bring in AV. It would benefit them. They're a smaller party. And, and, and I can also see why the Conservatives and, and Labour didn't want it. It's inherently damaging to the bigger parties. And this is something that I've noticed with the Labour Party. There's been a massive shift in the way that they look at public policy. You see, you see last year, they strongly voted down PR at conference. But this year, they strongly voted it through because I think there's a shift from the party looking internally as to what's good for them, to them now looking at what's actually good for the country. And PR and AV is definitely better for the country. It's more representative. But could you also tell us how first-past-the-post isn't representative? Yeah, absolutely. So, while I might not agree with you that the Labour Party has looked more outwardly recently than it has in the, in the past. <laughs> I should that. That's just, that's just a personal observation. I would um, I'm a partisan. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> what many nations learn from first past the post is that it it creates parties that don't necessarily care as much about voter representation as those that are put under rank choice voting will. It means that you have to first past the post means that you don't necessarily have to create large tents 
in a sense. It simply means that you can, as we see kind of with Liz Truss and as you saw in a sense with Boris, is you, it allows them to appeal to the more ex, the extremities of their own party in order to, in order to uh, further their own position politically while sacrificing what might be the wants of the voters. Um, and this is so prevalent in the States as well, where you can see an overwhelming consensus um, in uh, for abortion. Meanwhile, a party that many people vote for um, is is anti that at, at the moment. And it's a similar similar statement with uh, with climate change as well. And it leads to and it leads to some uh, real pandering to extremities within their own party which is what first past the post slowly leads countries countries towards. So I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of first past the post, but I, uh, the way that it's played out here, I, I because of our first past the post system, you, the, the Green Party has managed to put a lot of pressure on the Labour Party. In terms of social values, they're pretty aligned. Um, the difference was climate, and they realised that this was a big issue for people. And Labour sort of, I, I don't know if this is, to what extent this is because they were looking outwardly or because they were looking electorally, uh, have sort of realised that they need to get a coherent climate policy together to regain the members that they might have lost to the Greens who realised that climate is one of the biggest issues facing us today. Yeah, also, no, it, I, it, it, I mean, the, the, the danger is, I'm, I'm, look, I'm all for a more proportional system of representation, uh, but my one concern would be splitting our electoral system will lead to the rise of certain extremist groups you know imagine if if, if we were under proportional representation ukip would have won you know good amounts of seats in pre-brexit elections you know we, we would have had some real real crazy people in parliament at least you know first past the post for its faults and it's definitely showing them right now i mean for sure uh, has at least enabled us to keep a degree of stability. I mean, up until this Truss and Johnson mess has allowed the UK political system and, you know, the economy and society thereafter to, to retain at least some stability that drives us. It's an interesting distinction that you make there about the extremities of party. My, my question is, because of the significant status that the Conservatives have got, in, since the 2019 election, which is now dwindling, but they also shifted more to the right to sort of encompass those members that have also gone to more right-wing parties. Do you think that a shift in the electoral systems will result in a shift in the discourses in the country itself? Would it, would it result in a fundamental shift in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party? Or do you think that in order to adopt a more proportional representation system, we need to have a two-party system? Or do you think we should allow smaller parties to come in? Or do you think we should have a more tight electoral commission? This is to, to both of you. What? Yeah. Actually, I just want to. I just want to touch on on a. I think to say that the UK's had a degree of stability. Um, no, it hasn't. No, no, no. I'm saying it hasn't had a degree. Of yeah, yeah, but I, uh, but one of us hasn't. <laughs> I didn't say that <laughs> up politics. until this minute. I just want to, I just want to say that political parties and political leadership, you might have avoided extremist groups having a minority say in government, but we've actually got the extreme wing of the yeah. libertarian right 
in politics currently. And you can you can argue, um, you can absolutely argue that we didn't vote for this trust government, and I don't think the nation would have. Um, no but way. you can argue this is a direct result of us voting for, for Boris, and this is what it would lead for. And it's the same way that Corbyn isn't the moderate centre of the Labour Party. No, he's not. The Labour Party and very nearly the nation elected him. Very nearly. Very nearly. He got the most since Blair in 97 for a Labour leader. So, yeah, actually. And then you can also have a look at... You have a history of parties without in this first-past-the-post system having to pander to extremities to avoid them splitting off and potentially taking swathes of voters with them, at least with ranked-choice voting and or alternative voting, as it would be called in the UK, you would allow for these small parties, and sure, it would allow extremist voices into our, into our parliament, but at least they would be the minority rather than what we have now, which is the majority having to be be happy with an extreme libertarian government, which is exactly what we have right now. If you're talking about implementing right choice voting and how it would affect discourse in the UK, it's a really interesting, um, really interesting discussion of how that would work. Because when you when we had this vote in 2011, uh, a, a vote, uh, the part one of the parties that did want alternative voting was the British National Party, so the BNP, and that's a, and and you and it would absolutely give voice to some of the more ugly parts of the legacy of British imperial imperialism in the in the sort of uh, the the less developed counties in the in the UK. And that would be dangerous to an extent and you would see sort of obviously Farage's once again um with with quite a hot nationalist take that you're not currently getting from the what you're not currently which isn't currently being pushed forward primarily by the Conservative Party. Um, and it would allow for that, but it would also allow... Wait, wait, wait. It is being pushed forward by the Conservative Party. Suella say, Braverman... I would say that they're primarily focused on economic... Mate, have you heard what Suella Braverman said? Suella, Suella Braverman dreams of flights to Rwanda. I would say that while obviously that is a, a significant pandering, the main focus is on that economic policy at the moment rather than on their social policy, which is actually... Certainly because their economic policy is shit. Yeah, it's just... What? It was, and their economic <laughs> policy has driven us to a, point, a tipping point. Yeah, but that's where the but, focus is. That's not what I'm saying. That's what I'm, the, 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 all I'm saying is that's where the focus is. Yeah, but the focus isn't there because they want the focus to be there. The focus is there because it's that bad. Yeah, but that's if where anything, the focus don't want the focus to be on their economic policy because of how shit it is. They're focusing on their economic policy if it was doing well. So it's not... I'm saying that's where the focus is. By them, that's what they're talking by, about. By, by them or by the press? By the press and by them, that's what they're talking about. But are they talking about because the press are talking about it? Because the Bank of England had to step in and stop the pensions collapsing? But that's what they're talking about. Well, if they're both talking about it, then that's what they're both talking about. I think we've gone off, I think we've gone off point. My whole point... My whole... What are you talking about? I don't understand when what they're talking about isn't doesn't matter when their intentions... When I'm talking about what, what they're talking about. But they'd much rather it wasn't talked about. But if it was doing well, they'd rather it was talked about. The fact is that they're talking about it, the press is talking about it, we're talking about it, i.e. the focus is on it! <laughs> so Josh, if you could sum up everything that you've said, or the debates that we've had in the last uh, 20 minutes, how would you sum it up in two minutes? Go. So effectively, ranked choice voting is a, a really impressive... Um, form of alternative voting that would spur voter engagement 
and allow for a more moderate ground to be reached, especially in the States, which is what the proposal currently is by some of the more progressive members of the Democratic Party. Um, meanwhile, in the UK, we have rejected it already, mainly as ever due to a, a strong media campaign and conservative effort. Um, but also there's a chance now um, within Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer's Labour, um, to push it forward even more and potentially onto a national scene, although he has said in interviews that that's not really what interests interests him. What more interests him is is working for the British people because he's, he's in opposition and can't say anything else. So we'll see. Thank you very much, both Alexi and Josh. I enjoyed the debate. It's always interesting talking to you guys. Uh, we'll see you next week where James will finally be with us again and we'll let you know what we're going to discuss then. Thank you and bye-bye.